Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. You know, whiskey is a strange old substance, isn't it? Made from only three ingredients, it would appear to get most of its flavour from something that actually isn't even considered to be an ingredient at all. The three ingredients are barley and yeast. Well, okay, they both have flavours. But the third is water, which doesn't have flavour. So actually, only two of the three ingredients have flavour. And if you tasted either of them raw and in isolation, they would have little semblance to the wonderful liquor that we call whiskey. Of course... There are a series of processes that result in changes in reaction. Compounds merge, develop and change. Byproducts, some of them intoxicatingly brilliant, are born. Then, a process of distillation removes some of them, and one is left with a strong but clear liquid that looks very innocent indeed so innocent that even the angels themselves are drawn towards it. This is the point that whiskey once would have stopped, and in some cases it still does. The Irish would call it pachine, the Americans might call it moonshine or white dog, or a range of other names such as new make. Now one of my favourite names for it is cleric. This clear spirit is high octane and raw to the taste. It has a pungent nose and a a few glasses of it can leave the throat as raw as the taste is. Yet even at this stage the character of the distillery can still be found even if it is very immature. In fact, back in the days when distillery workers would be given generous measures during their shift, there were those that would by far prefer the white stuff to the mature spirit. Most of us would, however, opt for the oak-aged version. In Scotland, Ireland, England and many other countries, there is little choice. To be called whisky, it has to be aged for a minimum of three years. But not all countries have this restriction. And it is possible in America to buy white whisky. Anyway, back to the cask in hand. This colourless fluid is poured into oak casks, a process that occurred almost by accident. Someone had to put it somewhere, and these casks that had brought sherry into the country were lying around so it made sense to use them. The effect was wonderful. The cask smoothed out the rough edges and added a smoothness, a fruitiness, a sweet spiciness, toffee, caramel, and a complexity never before found was present. Some say that around 60% of the flavour of whisky comes from the wood it is aged in, but yet it's not considered to be an ingredient. 
But how does this work? And is any old wood as good as the other? Okay, the answer is it works because the wood is a porous organic compound and it breathes. It contracts and expands with temperature and humidity. And as it does, it allows the spirit to soak in. It mixes it with its own compounds and then releases it back into the cask. And as it does this, the compounds change. It allows contact with the air and that enables oxidation. And this will cause a lowering of peat levels and an increase in fruitiness. My view on this is that this is a strong argument for local maturation, as this air will be different depending on where it is. Nobody's going to convince me that the air along the coast of Scotland is the same as that in the centre of any big city. Although most have accepted that it makes no difference, I find it hard to accept. Just go to these places, take a deep breath, feel the difference that it has on you, and please, somebody tell me, really? Does that not have an effect on the whisky? And even if it doesn't, I have to say mentally, emotionally, to me it does. Climate also has an effect. Hot and dry will take out water vapours, leaving the cask full of a liquid that increases in its ABV, where cold and damp, as you get in Scotland, will take out the alcohol more than the water, leading to a lowering of the ABV. And these are the things that we call the angel's share. When this practice of storing in oak casks first started, the casks would be made from European oak. Later, as sherry became less popular and bourbon became more so, there is a change in the type of casks used. Sherry casks became increasingly more expensive. Yet in America, the Union stepped up and put into legislation that all American whiskies have to be aged in new American oak casks. This meant that there was a supply of American oak casks that couldn't be used a second time, and so were cheap, much cheaper than the sherry casks. But the contents were not the only difference. The wood itself was also different. And I do not mean just a difference between American and European oak, although there are differences in tannin levels and grain which makes a big difference on the spirit. Each tree grows at a different pace and in different ways, which is why distillers now spend so much time looking at the actual trees and choosing them and putting them to one side to be turned into casks rather than just buying casks. It has been suggested that the part of the tree can have a bearing on how it affects the cask and in turn the finished whisky. 
This could suggest that different parts of the tree can lend itself to be better for different whisky types and casking strengths, etc. And why on earth should this not be the case? Trees behave differently at different parts of their life cycle. The tops of the tree consist of more younger growth and different levels of compounds. Now, for much more information about this, take a look at www.singleoakproject.com. This is a project led by Buffalo Trace Distillery, and some very good interviews about this can be heard on Mark Gillespie's Whiskey Cast podcast. Which, to be honest, if you're into whiskey and you're listening to my podcast, you really should be listening to his podcast. The only thing I'd ask is if you do listen to his podcast, please carry on listening to mine, even though his is by far a better product. Now, going back to the Single Oak Project, as I said, it's led by Buffalo Trace Distillery, and it's a project in honour of Ronnie Eddins, former warehouse manager and actually the founder of the project's idea. Now I must confess to having a few mixed feelings about this project. Deep down inside of me there is a part that is frightened that over time we might lose trace of whiskey's roots. The simple farmer finding ways to make the most out of his produce, making that little extra, finding that thing that helps them get by and then developing it into a craft. There is a part of me that worries that this product that comes from the common man can be overtaken by science that the analysis and understanding becomes so great that the mystery is lost and a state of high quality conformity creeps in in which everything is done in the exact same way to get the very best results and that that then leads to less variety less character and with the elite paying high prices for a high status product But this is only a very small, because the tastes of the consumer are varied, and the needs of the consumer are varied, and more and more variety and experimentation is taking place. Projects such as the Single Oak Project will lead us to greater understanding, and this this will give us information which some will go with, and some will go against, and some will just ignore, and all of them will have their own followers. Anyway, let's get back to the cask. The wood is crafted into casks by the formation of staves that are bent, and to aid this, heat is applied to them. Now, once made, the American oak cask is charred, although there has been some experimentation using toasting. The degree of charring is chosen by the distiller and has a distinct effect on the finished product. 
the effect of the charred oak is that it gives a layer of charcoal which acts as another level of purification. We've had the still take out with its lovely copper content, take out some of the, the nasties that we don't want going through to the finished product. And now the charcoal is going to take away a bit more. It helps remove some of these unwanted substances such as sulphur. But the degree of char also makes a difference to what is beneath that charcoal layer. In this deeper layer, the heat will have altered the composition of the wood. The hemicellulose components are going to caramelise and this will give both a degree of colour and a level of sweetness to the whisky. Quite often when I taste a whisky, I will, I will not only taste but feel the texture of that caramel. And this is not a caramel that's been artificially added, but it's actually coming from this wood. Now when a cask has been reused a few times and it becomes tired, it is not unknown for them to be reamed out and recharred and then filled with sherry or wine or whatever for a short period to revitalise them. Now the effect is not as pronounced as it is for a new cask, but then again one is not always going to want it to be. It is possible that a distiller will purposefully select a cask on its second, third or fourth filling because they want a more gentle influence on a particular filling. Another change due to heating the cask is that the natural lignin within the wood changes so that it produces vanillin giving it that sweet flavor of vanilla again is that flavor that's often there sometimes in the background american oak european oak they're not the only options japanese distillers have access to japanese oak although other countries will find this hard to get hold of there's not so much of it around and the Japanese distillers be wanting to keep hold of that. At a recent tasting event I heard Bill Lumsden, Head of Distilling and Whiskey Creation for Glenmorangie and Ardbeg, talk about an experiment using wood other than oak. An experiment that would have been objected to by the SWA but one that he dropped anyway due to the poor results he got from it. Now at that event, Bill Lumsden had a few samples to give away to those lucky enough to answer some questions correctly. I had my second daughter with me for the event as she'd not long returned from her year away in Norway. The questions were asked, and each time my hand shot up like an eager schoolboy, desperate for the teacher's approval. Each time, someone else was picked, and then it came to the last prize, a good-sized sample of the new alligator from Ardbeg. Now, for those who don't know, 
alligator is so called because the casks are charred to level four. Now that is a very hard charring of the cask, so hard it actually causes the inside of the cask to crack slightly and give the alligator skin appearance. So here we are, the new alligator, a good size sample, not a little miniature, but a good size sample sampling bottle. And it was the last prize of the night. I was on the edge of my seat. The question was asked, but before he had even finished asking the question, my hand was up and waving. But no, someone else was chosen again. Someone from a different table. My hand went down again. And whilst I was very happy for their gain, I must confess to a slight sadness as well. But then there was silence. The answer given was wrong, and another question had to be asked. This time the question wasn't even about whiskey, and wasn't even about the Ardbeg dog, but about the dog's puppy. I didn't know the answer. Frustration grew inside of me as my mind struggled and struggled to try to find that answer that deep down I knew that I didn't know. But then again, neither did anyone else. A third question had to be asked. The tension could be tasted as if a 12-volt battery had been put across the tip of your tongue. The question was spoken out. Name a Scottish distillery that still uses floor. My hand shut up, my index finger pointing, and one buttock raised to my seat, anything to give that extra bit of height. The arm went up so fast I thought it was going to come straight out of its socket. The last word of the question fell into place. Maltings. As if in slow motion, Bill Lumsden's hand came down, his finger extended and pointed straight at me. The world stopped as I breathed in. Silence fell across the room, and as if England had scored the winning goal at a World Cup final, and I don't even like football, I said, Springbank. And the alligator was handed to my cradling arms. A few seconds went by, and I turned to my daughter, and I said to her, I'm sorry you had to see me like that. Some things just bring out the schoolboy in me. And we laughed. Now, shortly after that, I went up to Bill Lumsden, and we had a short chat with each other. You talked about the fact that Demerangi and Ardbeg, mm-hmm. both of those are developing a range of products mm-hmm. Do you think that there's a risk 
that having such a range of products could actually overwhelm the market? Absolutely not. In the case of our brands, and I'm very definite about that because we'll always have the core range. And these new products tend to be occasional limited edition offerings. So we're quite strict about that. We don't want to offer such a vast range. And you know, there is one brand in particular, there's quite a few, but there's one in particular, and the the phrase in the Scotch whisky industry is it's Tuesday, so there must be a new expression out. So no, we're very, very conscious of that. Yeah. But if somebody was relatively new to whiskey, mm-hmm. they come in, they see sh- such a vast array, what would your advice be in how to get into that? Service? If they're not really familiar with the category, then it can be confusing. I do accept that. So the best thing to do is to either read one of the good whiskey books by Jim Murray or Dave Broom, someone like that, or better still, go to a bar or specialist store like the wee dram where people can give you good advice yeah and you don't leap into something like Magavone Lafroy Guard Beg or something too intense it might put you off for life so start off more gently right would be my advice right and actually having somebody there who can mm. advise you. Do you is that part of the reason why Adrian is t- talking earlier on about the, the Ardbeg Embassy right the, the, the Ardbeg Embassy is we've selected a number of key retailers bars and stores who are particularly keen on Ardbeg have a great level of knowledge of Ardbeg and we know that they're going to be able to help us educate consumers so you know we've just kind of formalized what I just said there but there's no substitute for a good retailer and you know you can go and buy your wine in the supermarket you may not get such a specialist range or get better prices but you know if you're really interested in it I remember my student days in Edinburgh I used to go to Peter Green's a specialist independent wine and spirit retailer still exists and I would go in there and I'd say, this is how much I've got to spend. And I'd say, right, come on, and they'll find something for me. That's what you need, a good retailer who knows their stuff. Here. I mean, I would add to that on a personal note, living in Derbyshire and being somebody who's loved whiskey for a long, long time, the other thing that the specialist retailer can bring you is companionship. Yeah. Because I know what it was like in Derbyshire before yeah. the Weed Ram came here and what it's been like you since. You know, it makes it a pleasurable experience. Sure. It's something you look forward to. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. the, the other thing I really like about a good retailer is that you don't necessarily always have to be buying something, but you can just pop in and see what's happening. Mm. I was like that when I first moved up north as Glenmorangie Distillery Manager in the early 1990s. You know, the north of Scotland was a bit of a desert for good retailers, and so I used to go into Oddbins and Inverness almost every Saturday, and they got to know me. And, you know, I was a good customer of them, but they just shot the breeze with me, and it was nice to do that. Changing the subject slightly, when Adrian introduced you, he, he presented you as being foremost in the forefront of wood management, the expert, etc. I am aware that in America, for example, there, there, there's this research going on about oak, oak trees, what part of the tree yields different influences on the whiskey, as opposed to like whether it's the top mm. half, the bottom half, etc., etc. Is that something that you will be developing further? Um, it's an interesting one, Jim. I'm not 100% familiar with this research, so maybe you can point me in the right direction. Sure. 
you know, basically the type of wood you need to make a good uh, barrel, it has to be the heartwood right. of the tree. And you know, further up the tree, there's not going to be so much heartwood. So you know, without, I, I don't want to criticise something I don't know enough about, but it doesn't sound, it sounds almost like this is kind of more marketing driven to me. Okay, well so that's please, all... please point me in that oh, direction. That leads me into another question I was going to ask you then. There is this, I mean, you showed slides, you were there wearing your white coat at one point. Is there a risk that science can take over from the craft? Absolutely not. Again, if you've got a company who's passionate about their brand, and you know, Diageo is the biggest company. I used to work for the distillers company with huge research labs. You know, they use the information from the labs to back up certain things, but at the end of the day, it's always going to be an art and craft, and the science, as far as I'm concerned, will not dictate what happens. It will support what happens. Right. And, you know, I was speaking to the gentleman with a red beard there, who was, him and his professors are very keen on my work I've done in GCO, gas chromatographic olfactometry. I know it's interesting information, but it's not really going to determine what I do. I know it's certainly it's 80% art and craft, 20% science, that's for sure. Okay, I want to translate some of the stuff you've just said yeah. into very simple layman's yeah. terms. And if I'm putting the wrong words into your mm. mouth, please correct me. But my academic background, so mm-hmm. to speak, is more to do with nursing and to do with the arts. Okay. Focusing on the arts side of it, it's almost like you're saying that what is science is doing at the moment is actually giving you more tools mm-hmm. that the craftsman and the artisan can use. Exactly. It's giving us the tools to understand what's happening. And you, know, I know that when we ferment at Glenmorangie and then distill, the spirit will have these unusual citrusy fruit flavours and what the science is doing is allowing us to elucidate where they've come from and find out what the actual compounds are that's causing it. So for example, in Glenmorangie there's two compounds, one called limonene and one called linalool, which using the GCO have allowed us to determine that they are responsible for the citrusy fruit flavour. And these two compounds are also found in nature in lemon juice. So it's not surprising we should have that. And it's coming from the yeast during fermentation. Now, I'm highly unlikely to be able to manipulate that, but at least now I understand where it's coming from. And it just makes it sound a little bit less ridiculous when I say to someone, oh, I get this citrus fruit, and they'll say, in whiskey, are you mad? But, you know, it's quite quite reasonable we should find that. Yeah, I mean that, that also brings me on to something else. I mean, you, you talk tonight about wood, the importance of wood. Adrian introduced you as you know, the master of wood in many ways, but wood's not the only influence, is it? Not, how, of course not. How important is is the the type of barley, for example, and the way that it's molded? That, that's a very very interesting question. It's a question which divides opinion. As the main raw material for malt whiskey, of course, it's important. But from variety to variety, if you consider the overall flavour of a whisky is 100%, if the difference in variety even contributes 5% of the difference in flavour, I would be surprised. And I know it's something that one company in particular has talked about in the past. I'm a scientist. I need to see things in black and white before I believe it. I've not seen the evidence. I've done one or two experiments using different barley varieties, 
the results were extremely inconclusive, I have to say. I know, don't, don't get me wrong, part of me dearly wants to believe that, you know, Prisma and Durkado and Chariot will all give different flavours, but at the end of the day, there's so many other factors involved in the production of malt whisky that that difference, if it's ever there at all, is absolutely minimised. But there must be a difference, if not in flavour, in, in the way that it affects production. Because I've heard, for example, that when a certain distillery tried using beer barley, that the actual grist that was made from that was very difficult to yeah, get but a yield you know, I have to, I'm, I'm trying hard to be diplomatic sure. here. If you're going to actually go back and use a barley variety as outdated and outclassed as beer, then guess what? You're going to have problems. Mm. So um, I, I'm quite sceptical. And I know there's one or two people I've tried. I'm quite sceptical about that because, you know, as a scientist, I would have known it would lead to problems, which can only I can only but believe that it's primarily for PR purposes. Sure. And one distillery in particular, their spokesperson has spoken the biggest load of bullshit under the sun, and I'm happy to say that on record. And as a scientist, I know a lot of what he's saying is complete crap, so I don't fall for that. And you know, if you really are going to use beer barley, then guess what? Expect problems, right? Because you know that that's the main reason that barley for Varieties have progressed and changed because you kind of ironed out, selected out the problems. But in their defence, putting all those problems yeah, to yeah. one side, the experience of playing around with it has got to be fun. It's interesting, it's yeah. fun doing it, but you know. Does, does the same thing apply to yeast? How yeah. important is the yeast variety? The yeast is one of the most horribly ignored aspects in the production of malt whisky to the extent that it's almost treated as just a silly additive. And I'm a yeast physiologist by training, so I'm horrified by that. And, you know, watch this space. Okay. That's going to be the next big thing, in I my mean, view. One thing I'm aware of is that in the American market, the American distillers put a, seem to put a lot more emphasis mm-hmm. in their yeast varieties than they do in other areas. Um, they do. <laughs> they do. But, you know, 80% of the flavour comes from the oak barrel in bourbon and such like. So... To me, it would hold more water if that was used in other whisky industries. But, you know, like I say, they are showing us, Scott, a clean pair of heels in that. And there's a number of us that are determined to do something about that. One final question. Yeah. I mean, I've, to be honest, there's 101, if not 1,001. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the uh, very okay. generous gift. Right, you're welcome. Hope you talk. enjoyed it. Thank, yeah. you. thank you. If not 1,001 yeah. more questions, but... You've, you've given a fantastic evening. I don't want to wear you out anymore. Finishing on, which has to be a question to do with wood. Which is more important, do you think? The wood variety that makes the cast or what was in the cast uh-huh. in the first place? That, that's such a difficult question to answer. And, you know, my first answer to that would be the wood variety. And I say that because for Glenmorangie, if it's not matured in American oak, it's going to be a completely different product. However, if you're using a barrel for finishing, for extra maturation, okay, say you've got your base whiskey, then undoubtedly it's what's been in it before. So the question's almost on two levels. Okay. If you're maturing it in a wine barrel as new spirit, 
whatever wine's been in it will dominate, especially if it's a delicate spirit like Glenmorangie, like Glenfiddich, like Glenlivet, hence my comments about Macallan earlier. Sure. So, you know, the wood, whether it's American or French or Spanish oak, has a big influence to play. If you're using it for finishing, it's definitely what's in it. And, you know, Glenmorangie, extra matured range, all start off as using Glenmorangie original, 10 years, and then it's the Sauterne or the Port or the Sherry, which are the major influencer, in my view. That's okay. Right. Bill, thank you ever Jim, so thank much. you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity right. to speak. <laughs> okay. There's a few other things I'd like to say in this podcast, not related to the interview with Bill Lumsden or, or to do with wood or anything like that. Um, one is that a few episodes ago, I mentioned the project that's happening down at Annandale Distillery, the plans there to restore, to develop and to reopen that distillery, along with some other really impressive plans as well. And I've heard that there is the possibility that building work is starting on that site this week, which would be a fantastic sign. haven't had that confirmed by the distillery itself yet, um, but I, I hope to and really wish them the best with what's going on there. The other thing that's happened is that Shivas Brothers have released a Royal Salute tribute to honour bottling now this is a, a blended scotch whiskey with whiskies of 45 year old in there and i believe that the the cost of this whiskey is something like two hundred thousand dollars and that there's actually only 21 of them made the bottle is set with gold and silver and 22 carats of gemstones adorn the decorative collar and the and the flagon's visage Golden lions sit either side of the diamond-encrusted sword, a symbol of valiancy and patriotism, of battles fought and won. And looking at a photograph of the bottle, I have to say it does look like a thing of beauty. Absolutely gorgeous. Now, it's very difficult looking at a bottle that is as lovely as this, to then try to say something negative about it. But I need to ask for some help on this. The help that I'm asking for isn't going to suggest that we all club together and buy a bottle. Oh no. The help I want is actually understanding my reaction to it. The fact is, I just don't know what to think about it. I like the way whiskey has come from the common man. The way that it is accessible to so many in so many ways. For me, this is an essential aspect of its wonder, of its actual essence. However, I also like the way that it has gained status. The way that it is translated to high-end markets. Now, I don't know much about cars. To me... They're dysfunctional, and that's about all. But I can understand for the need for a variety of types of car. Some people need a cheap two-seater economy city nipper. Others need people carriers. Others need 
all-terrain vehicles with the ability to tow machinery, and some people need bulletproof limousines. I think whiskey is very similar. We need economic runaround whiskies, and we need the executive sense of occasion whiskies. Just like the everyday runaround benefits from the advancements developed from Formula One racing cars, so the domestic whisky benefits from the high aspect limited releases. However, I also feel that there is a risk in losing sight and taking it too far, taking it to a point where it, it doesn't make sense. I return again and again to something I have said many times, the obvious statement, whiskey is a drink. It may be so much more as well, but let's not forget that it is a drink. It is a drink of the people. That's not to say that it can't be high quality, cultured, classy, artistic, or that the fashionista hasn't as much right as anyone else to drink it. I guess that what I'm trying to say is, with a bottle of whiskey, the starting point should clearly remain the whiskey. It is a bottle of whiskey, as opposed to a bottle with whiskey in it. Now that's not to say that the bottle isn't important or cannot be a valuable work of art in its own right, because it can. There's a recent release of Highland Park and that's a good example of that. The bottle for that I think is absolutely wonderful. It's a bottle that relates to the distillery and enhances the whiskey experience. And I have to say, looking at this Chivas Regal bottle, again, it's a beautiful bottle and it relates to the heritage and the meaning of what this product has been about. All I'm saying is remember the starting point, keep the balance in check and be careful that the roots of whiskey, no matter how good it is, doesn't get overshadowed. Now, I'm not saying that they've done that with this whiskey. I'm just saying it's just a thought. Now, here's a question for you. What do you think you'll be doing on the 27th of March, 2012? Because the way things are going, there's a fair chance you might be having a dram of whiskey. And this is because of a new venture that seems to be taking off called World Whiskey Day. Now, I don't know a great deal about this, so I contacted them, and this is the email that I've had back. World Whiskey Day is coming. Let's get the world involved. World Whiskey Day will be held around the world on the 27th of March, 2012. This day marks the birthday of the famous late whiskey and beer writer Michael Jackson. The day takes its origins from an event held on March 27, 2009 by close friends and whiskey colleagues of Michael Jackson around the world. In June 2011, 
World Whiskey Day was re-established and in less than a week since launching there are already over 700 online attendees, 250 Facebook fans and over 100 Twitter followers. This day will be a day of global celebration of Scotland's national drink. Individuals, whisky shops, whisky clubs and whisky distilleries will be invited to register their events or plans on worldwhiskeyday.com when the site launches in the next few weeks. Then people can search for local events happening in their area and get involved. World Whiskey Day has already received offers from over 20 companies looking to collaborate on this project and many more collaborations are expected. As well as this, people from all over the world have been getting in touch offering to help pr promote World Whiskey Day in their country and also host events. For more information, go to www.facebook.com slash worldwhiskeyday and www.worldwhiskeyday.com Well that looks exciting. I'm hoping that there'll be more information coming out from that as time goes by. I'm not too sure who the people are who's organising this. I've only got one name and that's Blair who sent me that information. So thank you for that Blair. How this is going to work... At this point, I don't know, but it sounds like a good idea. When I first saw it, I made the comment, World Whiskey Day sounds like a prequel to World Hangover Day. Whiskey could do with a whole week, not just a day. It should be paced. It should be enjoyed over time. Um, but, you know, maybe that's something for the future, and we have to start with a, a little nugget. As far as I'm concerned, any excuse is a good excuse. When the news first started coming out about a distillery opening in England, the St George's Distillery in Norfolk, I felt very excited about that. But I also had a little bit of confusion because that was going to be the first English whiskey for a long time, for over a hundred years. And yet when I did a little bit of digging around, there was talk of another English whiskey a Cornish whisky to be precise. And that seemed to have been rumoured about a year before St George's started. And then it seemed to go out of my radar and then recently came back in following a tweet by Dominic Roscoe. It made me start digging around a bit more. I started to imagine that maybe I was wrong maybe it was just my imagination I hadn't seen that written down anywhere but after a bit of digging around I found that I was right so I contacted the people involved and tried to get an update on what's going on I tried to understand how this could be how could St George's be the first English distillery in over a hundred years and yet there'd be another whiskey there already being produced well I'm not too sure I st understand it even now. If this Cornish whiskey was being made before St George's started, then surely that was the first whiskey. But it wasn't because it wasn't pro 
wasn't opened up, it wasn't released to the market. And in fact, it still hasn't been released to the market. But that does seem to be happening soon. The other thing is, is it's not being thought of as being English whiskey. It's thought of as being Cornish whiskey. And that is a subtle but important difference. Even the spelling of the word whiskey is different. Because the Cornish whiskey is being spelt with an E, whereas the English whiskey doesn't have that E. Well, I've contacted them and I've had some information come back, which I'm going to share with you now, but there's going to be some more information in the future. And it's going to be one of those watch this spot situations. And as I find out more, I'll let you know. The response I've got back is the limited edition Hicks and Healy Cornish Single Malt Seven-Year-Old Whiskey is first whiskey to be produced in Cornwall in over 300 years and the oldest whiskey to be released in England for more than a century. Launched by St Austell Brewery and Healy Cider Farm, two of the most skilled Cornish drinks producers, this promises to be a unique whiskey of exceptional quality. The idea was initially the inspiration of St Austell's Brewery's head brewer Roger Ryman, who knew that the humid peninsula air and mild Cornish climate would provide optimum maturing conditions. The partnership brings expertise in brewing and distillation together for the first time in England. Made with Maris Otter Barley grown in Trerulfoot, South East Cornwall, the wash was mixed at St Austell Brewery traditional Victorian brew house before being transferred to Healy's farm near Truro and passed through a double distillation in a unique traditional copper pot still made by third generation coppersmiths Forsyth in Rothes, Scotland. At only 1,200 litres it's the smallest legal still in the country. The partnership between St Austell Brewery, brewer of the South West's favourite ales and the region's leading pub company and wholesaler, and Healy Cider Farm, the award-winning craft cider farm and Cornwall's only brandy distillery, was born from a handshake between these two forward-thinking Cornish brands. The limited edition Hicks and Healy Cornish Single Malt Whiskey will be available exclusively from Healy Cider Farm and the St Austell Brewery Visitor Centre and online at www.thecornishciderfarm.co.uk and www.stallbreweryshop.co.uk The price and the launch date yet to be confirmed. Well, I personally find that really exciting. I'm looking forward to that coming out. They talk about it being high quality whiskey. I've got no way of telling if that's the case until I get to sample some of it. But what I'm really excited about is that this is another region coming back to life which I'm going to hope is going to produce another whiskey with an individual character a Cornish whiskey 
and why not? The Cornwall is a land steeped in Celtic history and it has got a distilling past, even if it is in the long past, just waiting there to be have life breathed back into it. I think this is brilliant. I hope the whiskey's really good. I wish them success. Can't wait wait to try it. As I find out more, I'll let you know. Towards the end of last week, I was joined via Skype by the host of another podcast. This was the culmination of a small joint venture between myself and Ben and Joe from the Absolute Peach podcast. For those who are not aware, The Absolute Peach is a comedy podcast produced in Bournemouth and coming from the UK with a worldwide reach. I cannot remember how this venture first began, but in one of their episodes I can remember them saying that they wanted to know more about whiskey, so I sent them a couple of samples and ran a tasting session with them via Skype. Now I'm going to be putting the recording of that tasting session out in next week's episode of the Morted Muse podcast. Their podcast is very different from this one. They've got a very funny and chatty show full of banter and humour. Whereas there's really nothing funny about this show at all. Now to illustrate this. Just think how I've talked about their podcast and the fact I sent them samples. Listen to how they mention the samples. <laughs> Should we knock this on the head? No, tell your fish story. I've got two bottles of uh, I've got two bottles of an alcoholic substance next to me, yeah. which may or may not be urine. It looks a I'm, little bit like it. I'm told it's alcoholic. It's actually uh, looks a lot like urine. Smell it before we drink it. More on that later yeah. on in the show. Um, well, as I said, I should be playing the tasting session for that in next week's episode, along with some other things as well. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at com. There's the website www.themaltedmuse.com and there's also Twitter at twitter at themaltedmuse. So thank you again for listening. I hope you'll listen next week. And until then, thank you and goodbye.